0: Welcome to PRISM Bible, where we learn the Bible so we can live the story. God has a part for each of us to play, and to understand our purpose, we need to grasp the big, beautiful story that's unfolding in history. Join us today as we consider what the Bible has to say about Jesus so far. What may seem elusive is core to the story. The hope of a seed coming to set all things right. You're listening to PRISM Bible. So far in the Bible story, we haven't seen Jesus once. In fact, for many readers of the Bible, he seems downright elusive in the text. What can shift our perspective, though, is the realization that while so far Jesus isn't named, he is described. He's described as a coming Savior, and he's given a particular context. In the story showing us the need for someone to fix what's gone wrong in the world and in our hearts, we see the need for the Savior. So in this special lesson, we're going to review both the description of Jesus so far and the context that's demonstrating the great need of the world. So let's get into the description of Jesus. Description in the form of promises. It's critical to note that many of the promises core to the story are promises of a person. And this should be familiar to us that many of the promises are a person because we've talked about this from the very beginning of the Bible story. There in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the midst of the cursing on the serpent, God provides a promise. He says that the seed of the woman will do something to the serpent. This is about a person. The seed is a person. And here in this promise, we find out that this person, the descendant of Eve, will be instrumental in the plan of God. As the story develops, we come to find out more about the genealogical identity of this person too. We see that he will not only be a seed of the woman, but also a seed of Abraham, and then generations later, a seed of David. God doesn't want us to lose this thread through the Old Testament. It's not merely that something is coming, it's that someone is coming. Further, the promise of this someone includes more about that someone. What will the seed of Eve do? He will crush the head of the serpent. What will the seed of Abraham do? He will bring blessing to all the nations of the world. What will the seed of David do? He will rule on David's throne in an everlasting kingdom. The someone promised is going to do something involving the defeat of evil, the blessing of the world, and rule over an everlasting kingdom. The Bible gives us these descriptions of the person who is coming, and this serves to build anticipation in the narrative. We're always wondering, who is this seed, and when will he finally come? Along with the description of the coming seed comes the context for the coming one, the narrative story with themes and emphasis to help us understand not the question of who, but instead the question of why. Why is this seed going to come? Just think about Israel for a moment. Called out of Egyptian slavery, miraculously delivered, and yet time after time they complain, they grumble, they disobey, and they reject God by turning to fake gods. And that's just in the wilderness with Moses. Even after God gives them clear rules to follow and delivers them time and time again, they still follow this trajectory downward. They refuse to enter the land. Then upon finally entering, they fail to drive out the nations as God commanded. Then they reject God's rule over them and demand kings, and these kings, despite doing some great things for God, continue on the trajectory of the nation as they egregiously sin against Him. This ever-downward trajectory illustrates so many things for us that form the context for the coming of the seed. Let's briefly mention too. First, humans can't wholly follow God's rules, because humans have corrupt hearts. This is perhaps most apparent from the narrative, and it informs the speeches of Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua both know the hearts of the people, and they know that they will eventually rebel against the law and be cast out of the land of Canaan. The people need their corrupt hearts, uncorrupted. The second point of context is that God keeps His covenants and has mercy and grace on an undeserving people. What did we see every time Israel cried out to God? We saw God graciously provide for the people who certainly didn't deserve it. God isn't merely a God of judgment. He's a God of mercy and grace who responds when people turn to Him in faith. These two observations can help us understand more of the need that we have. Humans need not just moral reform, we need heart change. We need hearts that want to please God instead of reject Him. And this helps us see what's to come in the future. The merciful and gracious God will solve not just the moral problem, but the heart problem behind the moral problem. Somehow, the seed will be involved in God's solution. But that's not all. We've also been given wonderful pictures in the narrative so far that provide more context to the coming seed. Think about these pictures. The Passover lamb sacrificed in the place of the firstborn during the final plague on Egypt. The tabernacle tent that God used as the place of His presence and holiness in the midst of Israel. And finally, the temple in Jerusalem, with its imagery calling back to the garden itself. These pictures all come with lessons. The Passover lamb and the sacrificial system teach us that we need a substitute and an atonement for our sin. Approaching God's perfect holiness requires that our sins be covered by something else. Something else must die in our place to provide a covering for us. The tabernacle tent teaches us that God wants to dwell among his people and not just above his people. Despite the sinfulness of man, God loves people and wants relationship with them, so much so that he provides a means of relationship through the priesthood and sacrifices. The temple in Jerusalem teaches us that the way back to the garden is God. He is the one who can set things right again, and he is the one who we can look to for renewal and restoration. The promise of the seed isn't separate from these pictures, but it's in the context of them. The seed has more to do than merely fulfill the clear promises in the covenants. The seed must solve the other issues, too. The corruption of the human heart. The need for a substitute. The need for an atonement covering for sin. The desire of God to dwell among His people. And the way back to the garden in renewal and restoration of all things. In the story so far, it's not made clear yet exactly how the seed corresponds to these other needs but we know that he must. Finally, the last piece of context. Faith is the key to righteousness. This brings us back to Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. The faith of Abraham is the prime example of faith in the Bible that's reiterated in several of the other people of the story. A faith that God will accomplish His plan of salvation Despite how things look on the outside, a son born to a hundred-year-old man and his ninety-year-old wife, getting over a million people across the Red Sea as they flee Pharaoh's chariots, bred in the barren wilderness for forty years, the defeat of the fortified city of Jericho by marching around the city, three hundred men defeating an army of a hundred and thirty-five thousand, using a small armorless David against a giant enemy warrior. The narrative teaches us that against all odds, God will accomplish His purposes, and that people who believe in God can become part of those purposes. Not only will God accomplish His purposes with the faithful, but He'll somehow grant them righteousness. Somehow, the perfect moral righteousness of God is transferred to people not because of the works that they do, but because they have simple faith and trust in God. A faith not exclusive to the Israelites, but even extending to people of all the nations. People like a prostitute from the city of Jericho. The story so far provides tastes of what's coming and anticipates the coming of a man unlike any other. It gives us descriptions of this seed and the context for his coming. He will be born from Eve, Abraham, and David. He will defeat the serpent, bless the nations, and rule over Israel. He will somehow provide a perfect sacrifice that will finally cleanse people from their sins and will somehow get us back to the garden. He will make it so that God is not just above us, but with us. And for our part, we know that faith will be key to the righteousness that God requires for close fellowship with Him. A faith that somehow leads to a new, righteous heart free from slavery to sin. Where is Jesus in the story so far? It may not always be obvious, but the story is painting a picture for us, progressively adding detail after detail, with nearly every passage providing additional clues about the coming one who will set things right. In God's design, He shows the world its need before He shows the world its solution. God is giving us little bits of salt, with every promise and every clue peaking our taste buds. God is parching us and making us thirsty for something more. And by the end of the Hebrew Bible, the salt has done its work. The only thing we want is water. Cool, pure, bubbling water. Water so good that it's life to us. Living water that satisfies every need, fulfills every purpose, and brings life to every person thirsty enough to receive it. Join us next time as we see the fallout from Solomon's sin. The king dies and Israel's fault lines are exposed to the light of day. Don't forget to download the Prism Bible app, our mobile app to help you learn the Bible. In addition to this podcast content, we have Bible readings, summaries, and quiz questions on the app to help you get the most out of every lesson. Prism Bible is a project of the Bible Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping you learn the Bible.